Turn, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing in our study in the book of Ephesians. We'll do a real brief uh, review. Ephesians 1 through 3 talks about our new position in Christ. When we came to Christ, we were made alive. We were raised up with him. We were seated in the heavenlies with him. God gave to us every uh, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's made us a body, uh, his church. And so Paul prays that we understand that, and he prays that we grasp that. And then in Ephesians 4, through chapter 6, verse 9, there are five walks of the Christian life. Uh, the group walk, which is really uh, perhaps the best uh, display of how the church ought to work. Uh, in those first 16 verses of chapter 4, you have the unity of the body that we all need to work to preserve and protect. And then there's the individual diversity of all the gifts that God gives uh, to every believer. And then there's that community where we come together using our gifts and, and mutually uh, edifying, building up one another so that the body uh, grows and matures. And then the changed life walk. And that's the one we're looking at from chapter 4, verse 17 to 32. We looked at the, the first um, section, 17 to 24, and we called that no more tomb living. We once were dead in our trespasses and sins. We walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We all lived in the lusts of our flesh. And that should change. And so we read here in verse 24, um, but put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. You'll notice we don't make those garments. Those are provided by Jesus Christ. We simply, by faith, put them on. We put off the old grave clothes. We are no longer to live in the tombs, live like those who are dead, but we are to live in newness of life. And so uh, this week, the question is, what does newness of life look like? And let's pray. Father, we pray as we look at this passage that you would be pleased uh, to speak to our hearts, your voice, in ways so that we know it's you and that you would help us uh, to take hold of that which Christ has provided for us, because we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week we, we celebrated um, Easter and the power of the resurrection. And the resurrection of Christ was a powerful event. In Romans uh, 1.4, Paul, by the Spirit, writes, uh, Christ, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection completely vindicated Jesus Christ's claims that he was God. He had the power, as we heard in the first meeting, to lay down his life and the power to take it up again. Over Easter, I wrote a, a friend of mine, who, who says there's no God and there's no life after death. And, and I shared with him uh, uh, 2 Timothy 1.10, where it says Jesus Christ has come and abolished death and revealed life and immortality. 
And I said to him, it's hard for you to be walking on a road uh, that says there's no God and there's no life after death because Jesus Christ keeps getting in your way. Every Easter, you have to face this one who said, I rose from the dead, and look at the evidence. And the, the resurrection showed that Jesus Christ was truly God. He really is our uh, Savior. But the power demonstrated in Christ's resurrection is not just about an event in history. It has implications for our daily lives. So later in Romans, Paul would write in Romans 6, 4, Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. See, God wants us too to be in the road of those who are settling for just religion and not a relationship with Jesus Christ, for those who are walking the road of no God, no eternal uh, destiny, as they catch glimpses of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in changed lives. And so this has a very practical application to us, and Paul's going to uh, bring that out. And so that's why in Ephesians 1, Paul prayed um, that we would uh, know the power of Christ's resurrection. In Ephesians 1, 18 to 20, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the surpassing greatness of his power towards us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That is the power. The power that raised Christ from the dead is the power, Paul says, God wants you to experience in your life. And so he says later, in Ephesians 2, 5, and 6, we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, God has made alive together with him and raised us up with him. See, God didn't save us and leave us to wallow in our sins. He saved us to be different, to have this newness of life that comes through the power that raised Christ from the dead. This is also pictured in the words used to describe the kind of life we get at salvation. Everlasting life has the idea of no ending. We will never die again, and some of us will never die at all. John 11, 25 and 26, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me at the rapture will never die. But eternal life has a different emphasis. It is a life characterized by the qualities of the eternal one. So we read in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. And here in Ephesians 4.24, Paul adds three more, righteousness, holiness, and truth. And so the question comes, all right, stop preaching, start meddling. What does this newness of life look like? So I walk out the door next week. What should be in my life? What are some of these new garments that he wants me to put on? And so Paul's going to give us five examples. And one more side trip uh, before we look at those. In Romans 8, verses 3 and 4, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, 
We're not saying, here are some commandments, go out there and work real hard to live them. The flesh can't produce it. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. As we depend upon the Spirit, as we come and lay, acts, lay hold of that which Christ has provided, the Spirit of God changes us. And we actually, it says here, fulfill the law. And we're going to see that in these verses. We more than fulfill the Ten Commandments. You don't have to hold up the Ten Commandments and say, oh, I'm not going to lie, I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to covet, I'm not... No, if I'm walking by the Spirit, I will more than fulfill all of those Ten Commandments. So let's take a look at these verses. Verse 25. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. The law is based on the character of God, and, and we'll, we'll see that as we go through here. Um, in Exodus 20.16, we have uh, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, talking about in court, you're not to be involved in perjury. But Paul is quoting from Zechariah 8, verses 16 and 17, where God, through Zechariah, is giving some commentary on the ninth commandment. And this is what it says. These are the things which you should do. Speak the truth to one another. Judge with truth and judgment of peace in your gates. Also, let none of you devise evil in your heart against another. And do not love perjury. For all these things are what I hate, declares the Lord. And so Paul goes and he takes this commentary on uh, the Eighth Commandment, you shall not give uh, false witness in court. And, and he says the essence of that is to reflect the character of God. Speak the truth with one another. And so Paul draws on that. And you'll notice the first couple words of verse uh, 25, therefore laying aside falsehood. That's the same word that we saw up in verse 22, where it says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. Here's some of those grave clothes. Here's some of that tomb living that we should lay aside that more than fulfills the commandment not to perjure, be involved in perjury. He says, lay aside all falsehoods. That includes spinning the truth. That includes fudging the truth. That includes little white lies. He says, speak truth. Truth is conforming one's words to reality. We uh, heard uh, Titus 1-2. Um, the scripture says, part of God's character is he cannot lie. Numbers 23-19, God is not a man that he should lie. Titus 1-2, in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Aren't you glad that your salvation depends upon the promise of a God who cannot lie? There's lots of people out there depending on the words of some preacher. 
who can lie or be mistaken or just not know the, the full truth. But we stand on the promises of a God who cannot lie. And as his children, how then should we live? Laying aside all falsehoods. Stop lying. Speak the truth. Speak truth in love to one another. Because we're family. And God says, that's how I want you to live. So what does it mean to speak the truth in love? Well, here are four questions you can ask as you're about to share something or say something to someone else. Is it true? Do I know that what I'm about to say is true? Or did I just hear it? I'm passing on a rumor. Is it necessary? It, does the person I'm talking to need to know what, what I'm going to share with them? Number three, is it kind? Is sharing this kind to the person we're talking about? And then, is it beneficial? Is it going to result in benefit to him or her? Speak the truth. And so God says, listen, this newness of life, it affects the way you talk. It should be evident in the way you talk. And he's going to, he'll refer to other examples of this in speech a little later on. Verses 26 and 27. Be angry, yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Our world is flooded with anger today. Cut someone off in traffic and you'll, you'll see it real, real clearly. Anger's part of life that's hard to avoid. Emmaus did a, a thing at Iron Sharpens Iron on anger, and they said it, most anger comes from unmet expectations. And since what I expected someone to do isn't met, I get angry. And other ones come from people sinning against us or hurting us. And we have to learn how to deal with anger, because anger comes up. Anger in itself isn't wrong. Notice what he says here. Be angry and yet do not sin. It's how I deal with the anger that uh, brings sin into the picture. Aristotle wrote, anyone can become angry, but to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose and in the right way that's hard. And that's what God wants us to learn. The Lord Jesus was angry. In Mark 3, 5, when the Pharisees wanted to prevent his healing of a man with a withered hand because of the hardness of their heart, it says the Lord looked around and was angry. In Matthew 21, 12, when he cleansed the temple from those making it a robber's den, he was angry. The command out of Psalm 4.4, is regarding the danger of anger mixed with sin. Sin in anger, there's a couple ways uh, that, that that can happen. First, it can be in the expression of the anger itself. Uh, anger uh, is in sin when anger becomes self-serving. 
has self as its central focus, when it's vindictive, when it wants to get back or hurt the other person, or when it's undisciplined, out of control, saying and doing things that are, will later uh, be regretted. You notice he says, be angry, but guard yourself that in your anger you don't slip over in, into sin. And then he, he brings another set of possibility of sins. He says, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Holding on to anger, even when it's, it's right that you were angry, you've been hurt by someone, holding on to anger uh, can lead to sin, creating a grievance or a grudge, an unwillingness to forgive. And, and Paul says these are the kinds of things that give the devil an opportunity. The, the word has the idea of a foothold. An army gains a foothold. And from there, they use that as a base of operations to, to come in and destroy. And God looks for, or Satan looks for opportunity. And anger is a wonderful opportunity for him to gain a foothold. All of us, I suspect, know people who are at loggerheads because anger has separated them. Uh, I know of at least one church that anger came in and between two people and basically has, has brought the church to a standstill. It probably would be better off just closing its doors. And it's a foothold. And anger is one of these areas where he says we have to learn by the Spirit to Acknowledge there's anger. Guard ourselves from sin as we feel that anger and not hold on to that anger that leads to more sin. Dealing with, with conflict, um, you know, that's a... We could go uh, a number of weeks on that. Uh, I put some of these little cards out on the bureau in front of the office. There's about 50 of them there. If you want one, take one, and we can always get more. It, it is um, a little booklet prepared by the Peacekeepers. Uh, the Peacekeeper was a book written by Ken Sandy. Uh, the Peacekeeper, a biblical guide to resolving personal conflicts. And it gives what they call the slippery slope. You know, when we're in conflict, there's there is, uh, psychologists tell us, the fight or flight. And so they call uh, the escape responses, the flight responses, peace faking. That's where one part is denying, denying that you're really angry or that you were really hurt. The second one is, is removing yourself from those people, putting a, a barrier between you and them. And then suicide even can be a result of flight from conflict. On the other side is the attack response, and uh, there it, it can be assault, whether it's verbally or, or physical. It can lead to litigation. It can even lead to murder. In between are what they call, and what the Bible recommends. There's overlooking. Just It's a small deal. I'm just going to let it slide. Love covers a multitude of sins. And then there's confront, confronting with the goal of reconciliation, 
There's bringing other people in for negotiation, mediation. Anyway, these little cards talk about that process. And so if this is an area that, that uh, this would help you, please uh, feel free to take those. But God is serious about anger um, because he knows it gives Satan an opportunity to destroy. Our world doesn't know how to handle anger. We don't know how to handle anger. And so God wants us to learn. Verse 28. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he'll have something to share with the one who has need. From stealing to sharing. From a thief to a philanthropist. In Exodus 20. 15, God gave the eighth command, you shall not steal. Stealing reveals the selfishness of the sinful heart. I want this, and I will have it, even if it means taking it from you. The other day, I walked out to my garage to uh, go and get some things for, from Panera for Gail, who was having someone coming in, and uh, I opened my garage door, and there was uh, a woman's purse, all of the things of a woman's purse laying behind my car in the garage. Someone had broken into a house a few doors away and uh, had walked up. I, I had him on my camera on my uh, ring uh, security thing. But at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning, he it, it gave us a little pause because he must have known our garage was unlocked. He must have already surveyed our garage, thankfully, finding nothing to steal. But, uh, but he had gone in there and, and tore her purse apart and a couple other bags he had grabbed and, and took all the money out of it. And uh, I happened to talk to the woman's sister later by accident. And, you know, just the sense of violation. Someone entered my house. Someone took my things. Uh, and, and so God says, I want there to be newness of life. Instead of stealing, I want those who were involved in stealing to, to do honest work and then meet the needs of others by giving. You know, the Tenth Commandment displays the character of God. God is good and he gives. And the scriptures are just filled with all the things God gives. Uh, among them, we've already seen every spiritual gift in Ephesians 1.3. He gave his son John 3.16, he gives the Holy Spirit. Luke 11.13, he gives wisdom to everyone who asks. James 1.5, and the list just goes on and on. Indeed, he's the source of every good gift. James 1.17. And here's this God who's good and generous and gives, and he doesn't want his children stealing. He wants them to reflect his character. And so he calls on us to be people who give. It's interesting, in the Word of God, this change from stealing to sharing uh, is mentioned a couple times. In Titus 2, uh, 2.10, it talks about slaves not pilfering, not stealing, but showing all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect. Here are some slaves and if they're not stealing, if they're not shirking, 
but they in good faith live their lives and do their work, they are actually adorning the gospel of God, uh, their Savior, as it becomes known that they're Christians. Again, in 2 Corinthians 9, 13, uh, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are two chapters that talk about giving. And Paul talks about a gift that the Corinthians were going to put together. And he says in verse 13, because of the proof given by this ministry, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ. We don't talk much about giving here. And that's not a bad thing. But I remember hearing a man uh, one time when we were visiting another church um, say, probably the genuineness of your faith is better seen in what you give than in what you say. And God says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to work hard that which is honest. I want you to set apart a portion. And I want you to be a person who gives to those in need. Because that's who I am. And that's what this newness of life is about. And so when you come and you talk about good deeds, you find words in, in Titus uh, and, and Timothy where it says, let the Christians be first in line when it comes to be doing good works. They ought to see our generous spirit. They ought to, to see it back up, our, our statement that this God who gives all these good gifts is our Heavenly Father. He turns in verses 29 and 30 to speech again. The Bible talks about the power of words. Proverbs is filled with verses on the power of words. Proverbs 12, 18. There is one who speaks rashly like the thrust of a sword, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of his tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruit. And so he says, let no corrupt or unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. The believer is to avoid corrupt or unwholesome speech. The word means that which is worthless or rotten it's used of rotten fruit, of rotten meat. Rotten words like gossip, coarse jesting, belittling, profanity, vulgarity, slander. In contrast, believers are to be speakers of good words. Good has the idea of helpful or beneficial. Paul goes on to describe the desired speech as able to build up, to edify, according to the need of the moment, timely, and a gift. That's what give grace means, a gift to those who hear. All of us have experienced that. All of us have in our memory something someone said to us, and it was a wound that it took time to heal. Others of us have memories of someone saying something to us that was a great encouragement to us. 
kind of encouraged us to, to pursue something, to, to have a, a sense of, of benefit to ourselves. Years ago, I was listening to the radio. I think it was the Dobson program. And a woman came. They had a woman on, and, and she was talking about this verse. And she had a son that was difficult. He, he didn't obey. He didn't listen. He didn't work hard in school. Of course, naturally, he had a sister that did all those things. And so she was always comparing him to, to the sister. And she was always uh, speaking to him. And she heard someone speak on this verse. And he said, when you die... The people closest to you, what are they going to remember about your words? Will they stand up and say, I remember when this person said this about me. It's a treasure that I will carry the rest of my life. And, and God just smote her. Because she knew that she was giving bad gifts. She was giving wounds to her son. And so she began to change the way she addressed her sons. She tried to couch things. You know, you still have to correct. You still have to, to hold to boundaries. But she tried to do it in ways that were spoken in encouraging ways. And she looked for things to, to encourage him in and to compliment him on. And she said, you know what happened? His life turned completely around. Because he needed someone to believe in him, to encourage him, to, to spur him on. And God says, listen, hanging out with Christians ought to be one of the best things that can happen to you. But many times, taking a verse out of context, people leave saying, these are the wounds that I received in the house of my friends. How's your speech? Will you be remembered as a person who, who gave treasures? Who brought healing into lives? Or will you be remembered as someone who wounded? Is it important? Look at the next verse. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Corrupt speech grieves the Holy Spirit. It does not just hurt the one it's aimed at. It hurts the Holy Spirit. And it hurts you because while the Holy Spirit guarantees your safe arrival to heaven, it hinders his ability to work in your life. When the Spirit of God's grieved, he's got to work on this area. He cannot work on other areas of your life. And speech is one of these areas where the Spirit of God says, listen, your speech grieves me. It keeps me from being able to produce in your life what I want to produce. God says, listen, you're my children. Speak the truth in love. May your words be a gift, not a wound. This passage does beat up. As I shared, Dave, it's been beating me up for the last two weeks. Um, 
verse 31. Kind of he's going back to, he's going to list six sins. And these are sins that a person can fall into when he's attacked, perhaps by corrupt speech, perhaps by something else. And, and these are kind of those sins of holding on to your anger. And so he talks about them. Let all bitterness, bitterness is a spite that harbors a growing resentment. It's the holding of a grudge. And wrath, wrath is a passionate rage, a heart that's a roaring furnace, uncontrolled passion. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger. Anger is, is a word that has the idea of settled feelings of anger. Uh, wrath is hot anger. The word for anger here is cold anger. Clamor, quarreling, shouting, yelling, slander, defaming another's character. Malice, settled ill will that leads to evil schemes. Wishing ill on that person. Daydreaming of of bad things that could happen to him. And notice what he says to do. He says, um, be put away from you. This is a word that means to get rid of, make a clean sweep of. Um, sometimes I take the dog to the dog park. People often don't pick up like they're supposed to. I come home. Realize after I've tracked through the kitchen, there's dog manure on my shoe. You clean a little more effectively. These are the dog manure of this world. Sweep it out. Make a clean sweep. In First Corinthians or Second Corinthians 10, it talks about taking captive every thought. When these thoughts show up, you need to just know. These are things God does not want you to harbor, to hold on to. Sweep them away. Make a clean sweep. They are things that defile the heart, the life, and all who surround you. Instead, he says, verse 22, we should be. This word be has the idea of be becoming. God... God understands that this isn't just putting on a, a set of clothes. This, is, this takes some effort. These are, are uh, some qualities that uh, you're going to have the Spirit's going to have to work in your life on. Kindness. It's a goodness that flows out of a sweet and generous spirit. It's the total opposite of bitterness. Tenderheartedness. This word's found only here and in 1 Peter 3.8. To be compassionate towards those who offend us. Forgiving. To treat the offended person graciously with a desire to have a broken spirit restored. Here's what I want. I want you to be kind. I want you to have compassion. Be tender hearted. I want you to have a forgiving nature. Why? Because God in Christ forgave us. 
because these actions reflect God's character. We're his children. These actions were made possible by Christ's death and resurrection. They had a great cost. God knows these things are hard. But he knows the cost Christ paid so that those things can be in our lives. These actions are in line with God's purposes in salvation. It's what God's called us to do. So what does newness of life look like? That looks like the Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter, it talks about the, the proof of your faith is more precious than gold, um, even uh, refined by fire. In ancient times, they would take gold ore and they would smelt it in a pot. And when the stuff that wasn't gold, gold being heavier, would come to the surface, they'd scrape it off and they would look at it. And if they didn't see what they wanted, they, they knew there was more impurities, so they would heat it up again. And more the impurities would come, they'd scrape it off and they would look at it. And if they couldn't see what they wanted, they would again heat it up because there was more impurities. Eventually, they would see what they were looking for. What were they looking for? They were looking to see their own face reflected in the gold. God is working in our lives until he sees his son being reflected back at him. The first week, he says, listen, this is tomb living. It's like the Gentiles. They're in the dark. They're, they're getting harder and harder towards God. They're ignorant towards what God wants to do in their lives. It leads to all kinds of sinful, full passions. I want you to come out of the tomb to stop living that kind of life. Last week, we celebrated the power that makes it possible. And this week, God says, lay hold of that power. And in these five areas of falsehood, of lies, get rid of it, of, of anger. Learn to, to handle it so that there's not sin in it and, and you're restoring relationships. In, in the area of, of stealing, go, set that aside. Become a person who shares, who shares God's generous heart. Um, with your words, may you be known for a person who, who gives words that are treasured for years because of the encouragement, not wounds that, that cause people to limp along and need healing. Let these sins that want to take hold, where Satan gets a foothold in our lives, and, and it fouls everything, be washed out of your life. Learn to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving. See, God wants you to go out this week and live in the power of Christ's resurrection so we get in the way of those who are headed to hell. And in a glimpse of resurrection life in your life, you get in their way just like Christ is trying to get in their way. We're going to finish with a, a song that I heard when I was driving the Cedar Rapids last Sunday. It's by the music group Kane.
It's called Rise Up Lazarus. And the words will be on the screen. I'll pray and when the song's over, we'll be dismissed. But what I liked about this song was they say it's an invitation from Christ. This whole section is an invitation from Jesus Christ to be different. To in these areas and others beyond that Paul didn't even talk about. To have resurrection life that's good for you, good for your family, and stands in the way of those who walk in the darkness. Let's pray. Father, we just we thank you that you didn't just save us and then someday you'll show up and you'll save us again. But you work in our lives to make us different, to give us newness of life. I, I think of, of the world's view where the Humanist Manifesto says there is no God who will save us. We have to save ourselves. Oh God, how lost they are. Help us to live this week so that people we come in contact with catch a glimpse of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ because we ask it in his own precious name.